Good morning, everybody. Like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. And special and a warm welcome to those of you who might be visiting with us for the very first time. So glad to have you in the house today. And as always, welcome to those of you who are watching us live or on demand via our live stream or through our website. So glad to have you here as well. And then before I get into the message, I just want to say, pardon our dust, especially if you're new. Um, as you probably can tell as you walked in, we're in the midst of our four-year expansion project. And so we're making great headway. And I'm told that just in a couple of weeks, uh, we'll be all done with that. And so I just want to say thank you to those of you who have made pledges and even those of you who haven't pledged, who continue to make gifts. Your generosities continue to, to fund what's next for the SSV. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Also, these bathrooms here are offline. You, you'll need to use these bathrooms in, I believe, the north hallway. And so we're also replacing the, air, the, the heating unit in there. So it's a little chilly in there. So pardon our dust. We're a little bit under construction but it's good progress. Amen? Amen. Well, it is, as the, as the songwriter put it, the most wonderful time of year. It's the Christmas season, and uh, many of you are starting to get into the Christmas uh, spirit, right? The weather is changing. They're playing Christmas music on the radio. Decorations are going up all over the place, and no doubt some of you have taken to shopping on Black Friday or Small Business Saturday or even Cyber Monday, uh, looking to secure what some might call that perfect Christmas gift. Anybody in search of the, nobody's in search of <laughs> Well, I hope, I hope, for your loved one's sake, I hope that you get into the spirit soon, right? So millions have taken to shops and logged on looking for that perfect Christmas gift. And I wondered to myself this week, what makes a good Christmas present? What makes that perfect Christmas gift? And so I did uh, what any smart person would do when you're looking for the answer for something. I, I asked Google. I typed it right there in the search engine and Google didn't let me down either the first or the second hit. What makes a good Christmas present? Google gave me three suggestions that I want to share with you this morning. A good Christmas present, according to Google, is practical, durable, and meaningful, and all of that beats surprising, flashy, and even thoughtful. Practical, durable, meaningful beats flashy, surprising, and thoughtful. Right there from Al Gore's internet, right there on Google. The second thing Google says is that you should give gifts that solve problems and are easy to benefit. If you want to find that perfect Christmas present, your gift should solve a problem for people and it should be easy to benefit from. Third, but not least, Google says that you should focus on making the recipient better off in the long run, not short-term highs that make you or them feel good in that moment. Now, if you're a kid and you're reading this list, you think, this is really stupid, right? <laughs> give me something flashy. Give me something big. Give me something grand. But if you're a little older, like me, you're feeling very validated at this point. In fact, at this moment right now, your Amazon shopping cart is full of socks and mittens and calculators and can openers and bread makers and sewing kits because you jive with this whole practical, durable, meaningful, something that solves the problem, right? 
And so years ago, my wife brought me this Bluetooth speaker. She knows that I'm a music lover. I'm constantly listening to something. And I can tell you, I listen to that thing every single day of my entire life, that little Bluetooth speaker, every single day. And so thank you, honey, for giving me such a thoughtful gift. My kids one year gave me a backpack. And I got to tell you, when I opened it, I wasn't that impressed. I was hoping for something <laughs> less practical, uh, less, you know, practical, and something that I had actually put on the list that I'd given them, right? But can I tell you, I use that backpack every day of my life, or just about, when I'm moving from my home office to my office here at church. Somebody can get me a beast water for Christmas. I use it almost every single day. It's the best bag for travel. And a year ago, the strap broke on it, and the company sent me a brand new one for free. And so if they keep that up, I will have this backpack for the rest of my life. They might tuck it in my casket as they lower me down. What a practical, durable, meaningful gift. Solves a problem. is easy to benefit from, right? Now, you don't have to be a preacher to see where this introduction is going, right? I'm going to say, in the same way, when we think about the greatest gift that has been ever given to humankind, the gift of Jesus, the gift of the Messiah, we want to think about him as a gift that is durable, practical, meaningful, solves a problem, is easy to benefit from, and makes the recipients, us, better off in the long run. Friends, I'm talking about the gift of Jesus. The greatest gift that has ever been given to humankind. And since we're in this Christmas season, we're in this Advent season, I want to begin a brand new teaching series this morning that I'm simply calling Jesus, the gift that keeps giving. Jesus, the gift that keeps giving. We're entering now week two of the Advent series. <laughs> And Advent, don't laugh at me, please, is a season observed by Christians all over the world. It's a time of expectant waiting and preparation of the celebration of the birth of Jesus at Christmas time. And each year we remind you what we do at Advent. It, during Advent, we do at least three things. We thank God for, his first, for Christ's first coming. We prepare for Christ's second coming. But more importantly, we celebrate his presence among us today. And I was struck this week by the prophetic picture that the prophet Isaiah paints for the coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, is a very popular uh, passage of Scripture, was popularized even more by Handel's Messiah. The prophet says this, For a child is born to us, and a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestors today before eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So many years before Messiah would even come to earth, we were given this prophetic picture of who Messiah would be and what he would do. This is big. This is large and in charge. This is a regal description. It's dripping with importance, as it should be, because Christ is king. But I was double-struck this week when I looked at what Messiah said about himself and who he would be and what he had come to do when he comes to earth. 
in the New Testament, uh, recorded in Luke's gospel, Jesus goes to the temple and a scroll is handed to him, to him and he reads about himself from that scroll of Isaiah. And he reads not from the passage we just read, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. He instead reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. I'll read that passage for you in Luke chapter 4 right now. Verse 17, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, the scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now you should know there were no microphones in the first century, but if there were microphones, this would be the appropriate place for Jesus to drop it. This is what Emmanuel would be up to, this gift from God to us, good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, sight to the blind, freedom for, for the oppressed, on and on and on. And this is more than just a baby, friends, with some obscure, important-sounding job descriptions. This is Emmanuel, who we just sang about, God with us. And so he didn't stand up and say, I'm going to be wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That's all true. But he zooms in for us and gives us a more specific rendering of what Messiah would come to do to break the change of those who are captive, to preach the good news to both those who are materially poor and those who are poor in spirit, to open up the blind eyes, heal lame legs, and set the captives free. This gift of Jesus would be practical, durable, meaningful. It will solve our problems. It would be easy to benefit from, and this great gift would make us, broken, sinful, fallen humanity, better off in the long run. The Savior, this promised Messiah, is the gift that just keeps on giving. And so the goal of this series is to highlight some of the ways that Jesus is that gift that keeps on giving and to prime our hearts to enter, and dare I say exit, this season with the right perspective. We might be covering texts that are off the beaten path of the normal Christmas story, but Jesus' story and his importance and his significance fall well outside of the confines of just the Christmas story in scripture. And I wanna begin this series this morning with a message that I'm simply calling Salvation is Here. Salvation is here. As we examine Christ as the gift that keeps giving, we examine one of the most beautiful, most meaningful things that he brings, and that is salvation. I'll look at a passage this morning at Luke chapter 19. Would you meet me there in your Bibles this morning? Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 1. There are Bibles, by the way, on the edges of your rows if you'd like to interact with the scriptures that way. You can also... Excuse me, interact with the scriptures through your mobile devices or your tablets. We'll also be projecting it on the screens. Luke chapter 19, while you find it, let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this season. We thank you, Lord, for how in this particular season there are certain things about who you are and what you've come to do that are drawn into sharper focus. 
And so I pray, Lord, that we would be attentive, that we would lean forward and receive from you, receive what you would have for us, and respond to you, Lord, in ways that you would find appropriate. I pray for those who are leaning in for the first time or for the first time in a long time. Lord, I pray that you would make your message clear to them and that you would give them clear, a clear path to respond to what you would say today, Lord. Put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Would you move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and your light might shine through? We ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start at verse 1. Reads this way. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked, at the, excuse me, looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Verse 8, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people in their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. This is the word of the Lord. Now this is a fascinating text. It's certainly not a classic Christmas or Advent passage, but it's fascinating nonetheless. It's also a fairly familiar passage. If you grew up in church, or if you grew up going to Sunday school, you might be familiar with this passage. But at the very beginning of this passage, we learned that there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and we learned that he's a chief tax collector in the region and that he had become, by virtue of his profession, very, very rich. Now, nobody likes to be audited. Nobody likes to see the IRS coming. But in the first century, tax collectors were especially hated, especially despised. Nobody wanted to see them coming for a number of reasons. Esau McCulley, who's an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, describes tax collectors in the first century he describes it this way. He says, business was booming in the first century. Rome had territory to conquer and an empire to maintain. It funded the empire by taxing conquered groups of people, including Jews in the first century. He continues, rather than collect the money themselves, the Romans engaged in something called tax farming. That meant that they would sell the collecting contracts to the highest bidder, who would then collect the taxes. Tax collectors profited from the economic exploitation of their own people. They had money, but it was dirty and despised. And for that reason, they were shunned by their own. And so Zacchaeus isn't just a run-of-the-mill IRS employee. He is a traitor to his own people. He's working for the occupying government and collecting taxes, which is already bad enough. But on top of that, since tax collectors took no formal salary, they had the liberty to collect however much they wanted to feather their own nests and to line their pockets with ill-gotten gain at the expense of their own countrymen. This was especially despised behavior. 
And so Zacchaeus here is a picture of what we might call an obvious sinner. An obvious sinner. Now, Paul tells us that we all are sinners. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But some folks are obvious sinners. And I say it all the time that we've all got skeletons, but not all of us have closets to neatly stow our skeletons. Right? And so it's easy to poke fun and to make fun and to highlight those who don't have closets large enough to stow their brokenness until we remember that we're all sinners and we all fall short. But, but, but Zacchaeus is a practical, shining example of an obvious sinner, one who is in desperate need of salvation. And as we consider Christ, who bringer of this gift of salvation, I think it's very important that we look at this story this morning. And I want to pull four things out that stand out to me in this text. I want them to be of note to you. The first thing is this, that in this story, this notorious tax collector, this despised sinner, takes an interest in Jesus. Zacchaeus takes an interest in Jesus. Now, I know this isn't a classic Christmas text, but it stands out to me as important because this is so fitting for this time of year because this holiday uh, season causes people who wouldn't normally darken the door of a church to come near church. This holiday season, for some reason, causes people who don't normally take part in things concerning faith to draw near to God, to draw near to faith, to draw near to church in really interesting ways. And so I see this sudden interest that Zacchaeus, this notorious sinner, taking in Jesus fitting for this particular season. Verse 3 said, he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Something got a hold of Zacchaeus. Maybe he heard the rumblings and grumblings about Jesus. Maybe he heard a story or two. Maybe he was shaking down somebody who had recently gotten healed and wanted to get a peek for himself. We don't know how he became interested or why he became interested. All the scriptures tell us is that he had a sudden interest in Jesus and went through considerable effort to get a look at the man. And I've learned as a preacher all these many years to look out for those like Zacchaeus who are in trees trying to sneak a peek at Jesus because somehow, some way, they are ripe for encounter. And some of you might be here today, and this is your treetop moment. You've scurried along, haven't given Jesus a second thought, but we turn the calendar page into December, and something wells within you, and you climb a tree, you scurry, you make considerable effort to just go get a peek. You don't intend to get too serious about things. You just want to take a peek, see what's happening. Maybe you've sold your soul for something or to something. Maybe you're not satisfied in your life. Maybe you heard there was more. Now you are here, up in the tree, trying to get a peek at Jesus. Now you've logged on to the live stream, and you're trying to take a peek at Jesus. Maybe you've gone to other churches around this time in years past, and you've felt mocked. You were labeled as, I forget what they call them, people who only come to church around Christmas or Easter. 
What are you doing here? Oh, now you want to come see Jesus? But not around here. Around Christmas time, we say, bring it. <laughs> if this is the only time you talk at the door of the church, great. Jesus can meet you here. If something stirs within you and you've never thought about Jesus before or if you've kept him on the dusty corners of your life before and you choose to bring your hips into this church or log yourself onto the live stream, we don't demean you, we don't belittle you. We say, Jesus, they are ripe for encounter. Do what only you can do. Because Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are what? Sinners. And so the very start of this chain reaction, we see Zacchaeus taking an interest in Jesus, and that is to be acknowledged, and that is to be applauded if that's you today. But it doesn't stop there. While Jesus is taking an interest in Zacchaeus, something else is happening at the very same time. Jesus is taking an interest in Zacchaeus. He's returning that interest. Verse 5 says, when he, Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were what? Displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, and they grumbled. Now, something's happening here. And I love this part of the story. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the story. Because Zacchaeus has heard through the grapevine that Jesus is coming, and he goes to check him out. But Zacchaeus couldn't possibly expect to have this kind of encounter with the Messiah. And Jesus, when he comes up to Zacchaeus, he doesn't say, hey, man, what's your name? Or, hey, fella, you know what you say when you, you don't know somebody's name and you're supposed to know it? Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus. I imagine he daps him up real smooth. Zacchaeus, right? With eagerness. Zacchaeus, who couldn't possibly have expected to be received in this way, he's giddy about this opportunity. He's joyous. And Jesus, with great audacity, invites himself to Zacchaeus' home, right? For the record, don't do that. Have you ever had somebody invite themselves to your houses? Don't do that. Unless you're Emmanuel, <laughs> unless you're the incarnate deity, wait until you're asked. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' home, and the crowds don't like it. The crowds don't like it. They grumble, they murmur, and should I say, the crowds are usually wrong. The mobs typically don't get it right. Now, I'm sure there are fine people in those crowds, upstanding citizens, but I kind of sympathize with them because this crowd is probably filled with many of Zacchaeus' victims, who had at some point, and perhaps maybe that week even, been shaken down by this unscrupulous man. And for whatever reason, they grumbled. Yet and still, Jesus knew his name. 
Jesus likely knew what he was into, and Jesus still wanted to hang, still wanted to come to Zacchaeus' house. But what the grumblers forgot, or what they failed to consider, is that if there were anybody in that crowd that needed some alone time with Jesus, it was the most notorious sinner. It was the oppressor. It was this Jewish guy who was working for the man, lining his pockets with ill-gotten gain. If there was anybody who needed to have an encounter with Jesus, if I'm getting shaken down every quarter, like, Lord, take him. Like, I want to hang with you. I got some questions to ask. I have my curiosities. But if you got one slot, if you got one slot, take Zacchaeus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today. You say, why? Here's why. Because interest in Jesus is never enough. It's an important first step, but it's never enough. Climbing a tree to get a peek at Jesus never saves anybody. Darkening the door of a church never saves anybody. Clicking on to the live stream never saves anybody. It's only until the living Jesus stands in your living room things starts to change. It's quiet in here today. Let me say it again. It's only until Jesus comes to where you live that any real difference is made. This is why when we sing about Emmanuel, God with us, this is why we celebrate his presence here, his proximity to us, his nearness in the here and now, because it's not until the Lord Jesus comes to hang with you where you live that things start to change. It's not until Jesus gets to meet your new boyfriend and come to the place where you work and check your internet history and strifle through your credit card account and your calendar and, and see fully where you spend your time, energy, and resource. It's not until Jesus comes to where you live that things happen. And so Jesus has taken an interest in Zacchaeus. Third thing we see in this text is that Zacchaeus engages in genuine repentance. Now, this is really important. I love, like, this text just preaches itself. We're walking through this text, and we see this beautiful progression. Somebody takes interest in Jesus. Jesus, in turn, takes interest in him. And then we get to the part, the important part, the turning point part, the necessary part, repentance. And repentance simply means to turn around, to turn from that which has stolen your gaze and attention and affection, to turn from that thing which you have put and sat on the throne of your heart in place of the Lord. And repentance means to turn from that and turn toward the Savior. This was the message of the kingdom when John the Baptist came preaching, 
proclaiming. What did he say? Repent and believe. When Jesus came, what did he come preaching? Repent and believe. Zacchaeus is starting to get it. Verse 8, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord. I will give half my wealth to the poor, and if I have cheated people in their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. That didn't take long, did it? We're talking about a meaningful encounter with Jesus. We'll get things moving. I can come and prepare a slick message every week, and that won't get you moving. The worship team, as they did this morning, can come and sing you happy, and that might not get things moving. But here's why we understand our job around here. We're trying to facilitate an encounter with the living God because as we see in this story, that's what really gets things moving here. Now, this is remarkable because it almost feels like Brother Luke uh, has left something out of the story. I'm looking for the place where, like, Jesus lectures him on honesty and integrity. I'm searching for the place where Jesus says to him all the things that we think we need to say to people when we find them in sin. Now, maybe... Luke leaves it out. Maybe he, you know, was on a deadline and he had to get this to the printers in time and he le left out the detail. Or maybe Jesus didn't have any other words for him because his presence was enough. Look, and I've come to, you know, we regularly allow people to pray the prayer of faith and, and regularly we invite people each and every week to receive uh, of salvation by praying. But I I'm just convinced that many of us have come to faith without praying the prayer at all. The prayer's not required. Repentance is required, right? The prayer helps us to grease the skids a little bit so that we can get to repentance, to give us language to repent, to set the stage for repentance. But many of you are here today, and I can ask you, hey, when did you come to faith? When did you pray the prayer? Or those of you who had spent extended time away from church or away from the Lord, we say, well, when did you pray? When did you come back to faith? When did you, like, say the prayer? And you might scratch your head and go, I don't know. I just came back to church, and I just start, like, letting Jesus, like, come to my house and rearrange the furniture and move stuff out and then move some of his stuff in. I couldn't tell you the date. I just start being transformed and hanging around a different crowd and making better decisions. And I used to just come to church uh, because I, out of duty, because this is what I do, but now I like to come to church. And you look up and you say, I'm a different person. When did it happen? I don't know. One day Jesus was just standing in my living room asking me about my stuff, and that maybe just be the time where I just started to become a new person. You see what I'm saying? Zacchaeus says, listen, man, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor because he was very rich. And even if you're very rich, like half is still half. And for a person who has made a profession of securing ill-gotten gain to give everybody he cheated back four times as much could very easily put him in the red. but we're talking about the costly nature of repentance. Not just turning around toward Jesus, 
but walking that same distance toward him that you walked away from him will require considerable cost, energy, and effort, genuine repentance. And so the fourth and final thing I see in this text is that salvation comes to his home. Salvation comes to Zacchaeus' home. Verse 9 says, Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Kind of like Jesus said when he stood up in the synagogue, read from the scroll about what he'd come to do, preach the good news to the poor. Now, here we see that the poor isn't just materially poor, because that kid was very rich. But he had just hit a place of such moral collapse and decay that he was impoverished in his soul, where it mattered the most. For the Son of Man came to seek. He's seeking, he's searching, he's pursuing and save those who are lost. Salvation, the greatest gift, had come to Zacchaeus. Now, we need to tell this to the folks in the crowd. I hope the rumors made it back to him that Zacchaeus was saved now. They would sure come to find out when he came to collect the next round of taxes. But somebody needed to tell him because they thought, oh, Zacchaeus was a lost cause. They might call him in today's vernacular a loser. But Jesus didn't see, when he looked at Zacchaeus, he didn't see a loser. He simply saw somebody who was losing at the moment. There wasn't a period there. Jesus saw this scoundrel as an opportunity because when he met Jesus, he got called by his name. And even though Zacchaeus had sold his soul for the money, he had sold his reputation for the money, Jesus saw something different because Jesus was the man who can get his soul back, who could purchase it back for good. And the sure sign that Zacchaeus had gotten his life back is when he can let go of the stuff that was in his hands. You might have come in wondering today, how do I get my life back? How do I get a hold of this salvation? I'm going to tell you. Zacchaeus demonstrates it perfectly. If you want to get your life back, let go of the stuff and grab hold of Jesus. Maybe you didn't know this, but Jesus is a lot to hold. You need two hands, every one of your fingers, and you can't grab a hold of Jesus with all kinds of other stuff in your hand. How do I get my life back? Let go of the stuff. Well, what stuff? I don't know. You know your stuff. You know those nouns of life, those snacks of life that you, you, you just got to have? How do you get your life back? You let go of the stuff. And you grab hold of Jesus. And this is what Zacchaeus did. Salvation came. And salvation is still here for you and for me because Jesus is, as the kids say, Jesus is that dude. 
He's the gift that keeps on giving. Salvation is here. Now, worship team, you can come up as I land the plane here. If you're here, my sneaking suspicion is that you have minimally taken an interest in Jesus. And if you've darkened the door of a church or a ministry of faith for the first time or the first time in a long time, I want to commend you. I want to say welcome. I want to say welcome back. I want to say this is a great start. And maybe you don't know this, but this Jesus has taken an interest in you. Not just now, now that you're interested in him. But the psalmist tells me that I was made with creative, purposeful intention. That every day was written in this book before I even lived one. He knows the words that I'm going to speak, that I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. He didn't just roll the dice with me. But he's not just taking an interest in you now, but from the very beginning, he knew your name. And he was calling you unto himself. Jesus has taken an interest in you, and like Zacchaeus, he is inviting himself to your house today, where you live. And so in response to all of that, he's asking that you engage in genuine repentance, that you turn from your sin and your desire to be the boss so that salvation can come to your house today. This is the gift. This is Emmanuel. This is the fruit of his proximity and nearness to us, that salvation has come. And it is ours. And all we have to do is lean toward the message of the kingdom, repent and believe. It's that simple. Where are you today? What decisions do you have to make? What things do you need to turn from? What do you have to start believing about God and yourself? And what do you have to start, stop believing about God and yourself? What crowds, noise do you have to turn down so that you can understand and receive that you are worth it? I'm not going to be too prescriptive. I'm going to let the Spirit deal with you. Why don't you stand with me if you can while we enter a time of worship. But finally, I want to say, and Curtis, I want to get those uh, slides ready. Um, I wasn't putting down praying the prayer of faith earlier. I was just saying I never really saw it in Scripture. But we have it as an opportunity for those of you who are interested in receiving the gift of salvation to very easily walk through that. And so one of the main reasons why we open the doors each and every Sunday and do anything that we do is so that we can invite more and more people into the family of faith. And so if you're here today and you've never received Christ as your Savior, you've made, never made a confession of faith, I want to give you that opportunity today. I just think it'd be spiritual malpractice to preach on salvation and not give you an opportunity, <laughs> right, to receive Christ. And so even if you've prayed this prayer before, if you wouldn't mind joining along just so folks don't feel like they're the only ones, I'm going to pray this prayer. 
Let's read this together. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, then welcome to the family of faith. If you prayed that prayer for the second time and you've come back to the Lord after some time away, welcome to the family of faith. And we want to help you on that journey.